Good evening. Welcome to you all. We're delighted to have you here. Uh, uh, my name is uh, Fawaz Jajas, and I am the uh, director of the Middle Eastern Center. I teach the modern Middle East and uh, international relations at the LSE. Uh, it really gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce um, Jeremy Bowen, uh, Middle Eastern editor for the BBC. Uh, he will address uh, the topic of his most just released now, this week. Today. Today. Uh, the Arab uprisings, uh, the people want the fall of the uh, regime. Uh, fascinating title. Uh, Jeremy, because he really would like to have a conversation. He does not want to have a lecture, uh, your typical uh, lecture here. So he will speak for about uh, 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, he would like to lay out his arguments on the table and then he opens the, the floor uh, for questions. Uh, most of you know Jeremy, um, who has been reporting for the BBC uh, since 1984 and has been a war correspondent uh, for most of that time uh, period. <clears throat> he has reported from, as I understand, from more than 70 different countries uh, since 1984, uh, particularly in the Balkan uh, and the Middle East. As an academic, and I'm very jealous of my profession, I don't say it very likely, Jeremy represents the best of British journalism, really the best British journalism. Uh, deep knowledge of Arab and Middle Eastern societies. A critical sensibility that distinguishes between the superficial and substantive. Uh, an appreciation of continuities and discontinuities uh, in the Middle East and the Balkans. And most important from my point of view as an academic, a concerted effort to look at the region from the inside out as opposed from the outside uh, in. Uh, it really was a pleasure. I welcome Jeremy and, and let us all welcome Jeremy to the LSE. Thank you, Fawaz, for such a very nice uh, introduction. I hope I live up to it for you. Let's put that there, certainly. It's very nice, actually, to be back at the LSE. I did my, my first degree at uh, University College London, but in those days, uh, if you did history, which is what I did, uh, it was a, more of a federal setup, and you could pick and choose your courses. It so happened that a lot of the courses I quite liked were on at the LSE, so I did most of my third year here and quite a bit of my second. So it was sort of my second home uh, as a as an undergraduate student. So it's nice to, it's obviously expanded and a lot fancier than when I was here in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, one of the great things about being, um, it's a privilege actually, uh, about being a, a news reporter for the BBC is that at times you find yourself in a place where the whole world is looking, uh, where everybody wants to know what's happening that day. And I was quite conscious of that one evening back in the very end of February last year when I was uh, just in the Rixos Hotel in Tripoli, uh, the five-star golden cage where the Gaddafi regime had installed the journalists who they'd let in to, uh, to report on what was going on there. And by the way, when you get let into a country like Libya under the Gaddafis, uh, they, they do it 
because they think they can get something out of you. Saif al-Islam believed that he could manipulate the Western press. Our first night there, he turned up in a lovely Italian knitwear and uh, nicely cut hair and designer stubble, very different to the dusty guy who you may remember with a gnarled hand when he was... Uh, when he was captured some months later after the fall of his father. In fact, one of my female colleagues described him as the forbidden crush, uh, safe, because he was, you know, he was a dashing figure. And, uh, and he said, while you're here, you may, you may hear bangs and crashes in the night that may sound like gunfire, but let me assure you, there will be fireworks, because people will be celebrating the triumph of my father and his... Uh, and his regime, and the fact that we, will, we have this little local difficulty and we will deal with it, believe you me. Uh, so, you know, as a journalist going in, you, um, you, you give up a certain amount of autonomy and freedom in return for the chance to, to pull back the curtain and peek inside the dark kingdom to go to places which otherwise you might not get to. So, you know, in, in Libya, that involved quite a bit of sneaking around at times, you know, using what uh, an esteemed colleague of mine, before, somewhat before my time, Nicholas Tomlin, who was killed in the 1973 war in the Middle East, but just once described as rat-like cunning and a modicum of literary ability, which, as he said, every journalist needed. I think the rat-like cunning, definitely. I'm not so sure about the literary ability. Uh, and so to get out and about, we had to do that, uh, to get to places like Tajura, uh, this satellite town of of Tripoli, which was a, at the time a hotbed of revolutionary activity, which of course they didn't want us to go to. So we would sneak out and get caught and pulled back and picked up by the Mokhabarat. And uh, we had, um, most of us anyway, a certain amount of license because we were sort of effectively, effectively under safe patronage. But some colleagues of mine, colleagues of mine, uh, a Palestinian colleague from BBC Arabic, was captured and tortured. Uh, it was not a he got a real sight of the underbelly of, of the Gaddafi regime. But of course, on the subject of being in a place where people, everybody who was following the story might want to be, that happened to me the day that, at the end of February when I interviewed Colonel Gaddafi. And like so many things in Gaddafi's Libya, it happened at the last minute and in a hurry, even though we'd been trying for some days by then to try to see the brother leader. And uh, he was... Uh, the guy who was helping us out to try to um, get the interview was a guy called Mohammed Abdullah Sanusi. He was the son uh, of the Sanusi, who was Gaddafi's head of intelligence, uh, uh, nephew by marriage, effectively, of, uh, of Gaddafi himself, and a man who greeted us at the Rixos with a full-on fashion show uh, because he, he was the very model of a designer urban guerrilla. One of the strange things about the, the inside of the Gaddafi regime was that they were, they were very style conscious. Uh, we went into the Rixos, and he, a wonderful hotel in terms of its infrastructure anyway, with great running water and fantastic bathroom facilities. And he greeted us with four days' growth of beard. It was, temperature was perfect, but he had on a, uh, one of those green combat-style designer jackets that you often see Italian tourists wearing when they're on holiday uh, with uh, beautiful fabric and but sort of combat-style patches, uh, very nice jeans, boots, but they were blue, suede, and uh, a little commando black hat, um, but it was cashmere. Uh, and <laughs> so when, um, when he, he 
came bowling down the corridor towards me. We'd heard rumors that perhaps it was, tonight was going to be the night. He came bowling down the corridor towards me. And he said, Jeremy, come now, come now. The leader is ready. The leader is ready to see you must come now. And, you know, television news is a bit of a waste-up business. So is lecturing at the LSE. Because, you know, underneath, you know, I had a pair of much scruffier jeans on than this and a fairly okay jacket and, uh, and a shirt. And I said, I was just outside my room, and I said, I said to him, look, uh, we, I, I've got a suit. I've got a suit inside the bedroom. Let me just go and put my suit on. And he said, he looked at his watch, and he looked me up and down with his designer combat jacket and his wonderful cashmere hat. And he said... No, it's war. Jeans are fine. <laughs> so, you know, on that note, I went to see Colonel Gaddafi. And uh, outside, we got into this... Um, there were a couple of absolutely beautiful uh, BMWs outside, brand new, armoured. We got in. I, I found myself touching the ceiling inside. There was fantastic... Uh, it was like suede leather inside. You know, the lining of the ceiling was suede leather. You could wear it in a very fine jacket. And he turned round, Sanusi turned round, you know, the scion of this family. And Sanusi, his father, of course, who's been captured now and is being referred to by his captors in Libya, where I was last week, as the black box, the man who really knows what happened uh, during the regime. But Sanusi, the son, he, he, he bred someone who's seen quite interested more, as I say, in style than anything. And uh, so he turned round to me as we were going off, you know, smoothly pulling away from the curb. And he said, it's a James Bond car. It's a James Bond car. So, in a sense, they were sort of living the dream, I think, some of these guys. And you could say that, too, about um, Musa Ibrahim, uh, the spokesman who was uh, perhaps or perhaps not captured uh, in Beni Walid last week. Uh, he was a guy who, when uh, the first trip, he was, the well, first time I went there, he was quite, um, he was quite sort of humble in a way, uh, but he got more and more confidence and he got closer to the regime as well and next time I turned up he said to me, he said, Jeremy I'm world famous now you have to get me on the BBC Hard Talk program I said I can get you on BBC Hard Talk, it's fine it's good, it's good uh, he's somebody who, who really I think also felt he was living the dream because just as he's about to go on on Hard Talk, this is Musa Ibrahim the man justifying and, 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 and arguing, arguing the case for Gaddafi and he just said to me, he said you know this is incredible. A year ago, I was a student getting pissed in London, and now I'm on hard talk. <laughs> so I think that uh, there was a sort of a fantasy element among some of uh, Gaddafi's entourage, uh, certainly among those younger people who came in around uh, Saif al-Islam. So we got, to, uh, we got in to see... I thought we would be taken to a, a tent in the desert, or at the very least a tent in his compound, but instead, what we were taken to was uh, a glass and steel Italian restaurant overlooking Tripoli docks. Very trendy, actually. We set up our equipment. I was there with uh, Christian Amanpour of ABC News and Marie Colvin, the Sunday Times, who was sadly, of course, killed this year in, in, uh, in Syria. Very good friend of mine. And uh, she did more than anybody else to get the interview, as a matter of fact. And Gaddafi pulled up. You know, I've interviewed a lot of people and it's quite rare that you sort of, a man fully conforms to your image of him. But he certainly did. You know, his beautiful robes, his hat, his shades, slightly eccentric behavior. Um, but, you know, the thing about Gaddafi at that particular time, and it was before the, uh, the call by the Arab League for a no-fly zone, 
Uh, it was before the vote in the United Nations, which called for all necessary measures to be taken against, against Gaddafi's Libya uh, to protect civilians. A phrase by which, by the way, which the, the British drafted the resolution and were very glad that it got in there. And they couldn't believe their luck. They were full of glee when the Russians agreed to it. One of the diplomats said to me afterwards, he said, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe they let that through. We put that phrase in, knowing we'd probably have to take it out. But they let it through. I cannot believe that happened. And that, of course, that phrase was what uh, NATO then took up, the British and the French, the Americans, uh, they picked up that phrase and ran with it and interpreted it as a charter for regime change, which is one reason why the Russians are so resentful now and why the Security Council is paralyzed about what to do about Syria because the Russians do strongly feel that uh, the West put one over on them when it came to Libya uh, with consequences which were... I mean, there's something in the Russian arguments, I think, which maybe we could, we could go into. But what I wanted to say about Gaddafi was, at that particular time, because the, the instant international constellation of forces had not um, formed and not coalesced against him, uh, he was self-confident. I felt that Gaddafi was somebody who was back where he wanted to be, taking on the world. A few years earlier, I'd been at the UN um, General Assembly in New York when Gaddafi did uh, an extraordinary um, rambling speech, uh, complete with a yellow pad in which he'd done diagrams. He held them up. It was worse than Netanyahu for holding up diagrams at the United Nations. And Gaddafi, um, at that time, was, you know, he was a bit of a figure of fun almost. After he'd come in from the cold, the local TV were full of, not his Gaddafi, what's he going to be saying, but his Gaddafi, he can't find a place to pitch his tent. Donald Trump had invited him to put his tent in, um, in New Jersey, in his estate, and the neighbors had complained. So Gaddafi was a bit of, he cut a, even though he was suddenly very popular and quite respectable, he cut um, quite a sorry figure, really, by his standards. And so at that time, you know, he was like a, an old man who was back being a young man um, at that particular time, before they, the forces <coughs> merged against him. He was very willing to talk. He addressed the questions. He spoke. I managed to irritate him enough for him to switch into English, which was, for me, the best part of it, because he said, uh, my people love me. They love me all. And he also said that uh, they, my people would die for me. And now when I go back to Libya, that's been so viewed on YouTube that people come up to me, Libyans come up to me and quote it to me like Monty Python fans quote the dead parrot sketch to, uh, you know, if they bump into one of those people. Because uh, seeing their leader, the, the leader, the brother leader, being asked direct questions on television was for them, because they watched it on satellite TV, of course, at the time, was a very new experience. I thought that Gaddafi wasn't mad. I didn't think he was mad. I thought he certainly, he certainly was bad, but he wasn't mad. I thought he was a man who lived in a, quite, a, quite a bubble. Wherever he'd gone since his 20s, he'd been surrounded, certainly in the later years of his regime, by cheering crowds, people kissing his picture. He surrounded himself with yes-men. Uh, I think that he felt he'd spelt a lot of blood. His power was pretty secure he would be able to deal with the rebellion because by then his tanks were already advancing down the coast road towards Benghazi. Uh, and he had a spring in his step and he was back where he wanted to be. I think he liked being what Ronald Reagan in the 80s called the mad dog of the Middle East. Uh, I think he quite liked feeling it's me against the world again. Uh, of course, things changed. It became him against the world and the world decided to do something about him. Now... 
When the, uh, the Arab uprisings started, and I've been quite careful to call them the, the Arab uprisings and not the Arab Spring, not that I don't like the phrase particularly, though I think it has, it, it, you know, it's a phrase probably coined by journalists which uh, has memories of the Prague Spring in Europe and other springs in different places and, you know, we're pretty much into, what is it now, the third winter, so I think we can stop calling it the Arab Spring. So I've called it the, the Arab Uprisings. Um, I don't mind admitting, as the BBC Middle East editor, that I was somewhat taken by surprise. I was, no, I was taken by surprise by what happened. And the thing which uh, makes me feel not quite so bad about that was not so far, not so much that Messrs. Gaddafi... Mubarak, Ben Ali, Assad were also taken by surprise, though that helps. It was also that I was speaking to one of the main organisers of the early demonstrations in Cairo, that first demonstration on police day, uh, which was way more successful than they expected. And I said to him, I said, look, I don't mind saying I was a bit surprised by all of this, because when I'd gone over there, there had been the, the, the revolution in Tunisia, the very precipitate fall of Ben Ali. I wasn't there for that because I was testifying at the war crimes tribunal in The Hague against, uh, against uh, Karadzic. Um, and it was over so quickly I couldn't get there in time. Uh, I was in the witness box. Um, but when, when a, just over a week later, I found myself on a plane to Cairo uh, to, after the first big demonstration on police day. I thought that... I told my kids I'll be home by the weekend because a lot of fires had smoldered in the region. Fires, not just of war, but fires of rebellion as well, and had been smoldering for some time and hadn't burst into flames. And I thought that Mubarak's police state would deal with it. I really thought they'd, they would. A few years earlier in Mahala, an industrial town, there had been what in retrospect looks like a bit of a dry run for what happened. There was, there was a program of strikes, uh, it was organized on Facebook. Uh, they, they used social media. They tried to bring in a lot of people. But it didn't get critical mass. And the police and the security forces dealt with it. I thought something similar would happen. I really, really did. And I, was, of course, was wrong. But I was talking, as I was saying, to one of the main organizers of those early protests. And I said to him, look, I was, I was surprised. And he said, you know, so was I. I said, really? He said, yeah. You know, I have been, he said, I've been, he had a good record of, of um, because of course in, in Egypt there was, a, there was a proud record of opposition to Mubarak, but it was from a minority of people. Uh, and so he said to me, he said, look, I really thought, I really thought that it would be like all the other times, that we'd get to the location, we'd chant for 10, 15 minutes, and then the police would come, and then I'd be in the back of a police van getting a kicking. It always happened that way. But he said it didn't work out like that. In fact, one of the others, one of his colleagues also organizing demonstrations, said, look, we, we started in poor districts because uh, we thought that we might get more people following us, you know, because they were on the streets. Uh, and, but, you know, they're windy roads. You can't quite tell. And it was only when they got to quite a long highway and they turned back. She said, I had no idea how well we were doing or how badly because there were just us at the front of the march and I could, I could sense there were people behind. But I turned around and there were 10,000 people behind me. I thought, my goodness, we've got something here. We've really got something here. And on that first Friday, 
uh, where there was a big demonstration. That was the Friday where the, the, the multitudes uh, took over Tahrir Square. Uh, at that particular time as well, one, um, again, one campaigner, you know, middle class, uh, foreign educated, came up to me and he said, look, this is the test today, he said. If it's just the Rolics Brigade from Zamalek who turn up, the usual crowd, he said, we're not going to get anywhere. But if it's the poor, we've got something. And a couple of hours later, I was seeing men of, you know, some, some quite old men as well, some of them practically dressed in rags, throwing themselves against the police, attacking water cannon, rocking back these great big armoured vans. And I thought to myself, then, Mubarak has got a big problem here. He's got a big problem because this thing could get critical mass. I'd been in uh, Iran at uh, the time of the Green Movement after the disputed election of 2009. And the thing about that was that after a while, the first demonstrations had a cross-section of society. The Shah fell because there were massive demonstrations in the streets against him. Uh, but after a week, say, after the election, the, the demonstrations in Tehran were down to the people from North Tehran, students, well-educated, and against the thugs that the regime could put out against them, they didn't have a chance. But when you have a critical mass of people, as they had in Cairo, and they took over the square, then Mubarak actually didn't have a chance. So what were the things that I should have noticed that they should have noticed, that would have given me the chance as a journalist to predict everything that was happening, which I sadly failed to do. In fact, one of my very esteemed colleagues, who I won't mention, from a very well newspaper, we were sitting when, towards the end of it all, just after Mubarak had fallen, a group of us, we finally had the chance for a drink, and uh, this person said, I wouldn't even give away the gender, because that might be a giveaway, said, uh, he said, look, you know, someone said, did any of us predict this? And I said, no, Fred, I didn't. And someone else said, no, I didn't. And someone else said, well, you know, I was thinking, uh, and he said, did you write it? Did you write it? <laughs> uh, well, no, not exactly. I didn't quite write it. I did think it, though. I say, that doesn't count. Because the thing was, yes, I mean, I was aware that change was going to have to come. You look at the, you know, look at the age profile of the leaders. Look at the way that they were preparing for change. Whoops. They were preparing for change. Preparing their sons. In case of Gaddafi, in case of Mubarak following the, you know, the, the Assad uh, principle of nominating a son and putting him in there so the presidency becomes a throne, it becomes a monarchy. And I think that was actually one of the factors which pushed people towards the edge and made them be prepared to take the risks that they did because they, they may have been thinking, well, at least when the old so-and-so goes, uh, we might have a chance. And then seeing you know, the retread, the Mark II coming through was something which I think a lot of people said that was one of the factors that got them out into the streets. What else should we have noticed? Killer statistics. The most important simple statistic, I think, that, that people should have in their heads is that, give or take a little bit, right across the region, 60% of the population is under the age of 30. And that demographic bulge, is what I argue in the book, is one of the strong factors driving all of this. There was a new generation that had come to maturity and found that the cake, which maybe at times in their parents' generation 
had just been about enough. You could slice it up. The, the, the people at the top would have to take a few slices, but there was enough left to at least have a little bit of a social contract insofar as, okay, you won't be able to do politics, you won't be able to, to, to um, oppose the regime, and you get into big trouble if you do, but we can provide some jobs. We can create jobs. You won't do anything, but you'll get enough to get by. And they were struggling even to do that. So those people under 30 thinking, what chance have I got, even in some cases, of getting married? You know, you, as many of you will know that in that part of the world, if you're uh, coming to maturity, in a sense, you're not taken seriously until you, if, as a man unless you're a married man. And you need a bit of money to do that. And there, so there are people who are getting into their late 20s, their 30s, they didn't have a chance. Uh, unemployment. Another very important statistic. 700,000 new entrants into the workforce in Egypt uh, every year. They create about 50,000 jobs for that 700,000. That is still the case, by the way, and a, probably one of the biggest single issues confronting uh, the Muslim Brotherhood president. So they found that the cake, by the time they got to it, the slices were getting thinner, and the, and the, the section being taken by the elite was getting bigger. People were prepared to take some risks. It enabled them to help, helped enable them uh, to forget their fear of what might happen, what might happen to them. And then, of course, when Tunisia happened, I spoke to one of uh, Cairo's leading bloggers, and he said to me, he said, look, there was this um, small North African country which used to beat us at football, and suddenly they were telling us what to do with politics. And we thought... If the Tunisians can get rid of Ben Ali, for goodness sake, we in Egypt, we can get rid of Mubarak. And he said that really encouraged them. It was possible, and of course, because of Egypt's position, once Egypt had done it, then everybody thought that they could have a go and get somewhere. A lot has been talked about social media. My view is, is that, yes, it was important as an organizing tool, but it wasn't the thing that got people out. Uh, I think, if anything, spread the word... It was satellite TV. The presence of, of pan-Arab satellite TV changed th has been, had been changing a lot in the region since the 90s. And I think 40% or so of the population of Egypt is illiterate. They're not going to be on Facebook and not taking out their iPads. Uh, but they will, in almost everywhere you go, see a TV that's got Al Jazeera on it. And Al Jazeera, of course, as you know, has become one of the chief cheerleaders for, for rebellion. Um, so there were all those factors coming together, which we didn't put together enough, frankly. We were probably as journalists. I was interviewed by an Israeli journalist yesterday. He said, you were too obsessed by, by us, weren't you? You were too obsessed by the Israelis and the Palestinians. You forgot about Arab politics. And I think there's some, probably some truth in that, uh, for the, the, the international media. I think that if this is a five-act play, we're at the end of the second act, maybe, beginning of the third. There's a lot more to come. At the very beginning, a lot of people outside the region, including the British government and the Foreign Office, thought it was going to be like 1989 all over again in Europe. Dominoes, tumbling, one push and the rotten edifice falls over. Because it happened very quickly in Tunisia and it happened very quickly in Egypt. But it didn't happen like that. You know, I think that, in fact, um, there was a, effectively a counter-revolution after that. And the... Uh, it, 
by the, end, by the time Mubarak went, there appeared to be a model of Arab revolt. You know, you organize yourself with people who've been watching the TV, who have these grievances, use social media, uh, take over a, a, a public space in the center of town, get there, stay there, keep pushing, and the whole rotten house will come down. But I think that it was clear, in fact, that Gaddafi, Assad, others, drew the conclusion from all of that, not that it was an inevitable process, but that Ben Ali and Mubarak made a mistake, which was not using enough force. Force works, they would have argued, as long as you use enough of it. Of course, there was another factor in Egypt and Tunisia, which was that there was a, an army in both countries which was prepared to park itself between the regime and the people, which was not the case in Syria, was not the case in Libya. And that made it much harder for demonstrators there who'd go out with nobody effectively to at least provide a, a blockage and stop things getting too bad in terms of slaughter. So it's, it's what we're in now there in the region, what they're in is a, is a, a generational process of change. Turbulence which will go on for some time. A, a civil war in Syria, which is already contaminating its neighbors, where there is already foreign intervention, though not the kind of foreign intervention that can prove decisive in giving one side the military edge over the other, at least not yet. If you think, I mean, I was in Libya last week, and then we had to change course quite quickly and go to Beirut after the assassination in Beirut on, on, on Friday. So, you, you know, you can see the way that the trouble spreads. And I think that if you want to look at anything particularly, you know, if you, futurology is a very dastardly game and you do it in your, at your peril, but just to indulge in it slightly, uh, I think that if, if you want to track the way things might go in the next few years, I think it's a, quite a good exercise to look at the, uh, the Shia-Sunni divide, the fault line that runs right through the region, which is sharper uh, in the last 10 years than it has been in a considerable amount of time. Uh, the, 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 the pressures for change and the rebellions and the disruptions and turbulence that, of course, have caused have, in a sense, merged with some of the existing issues in the region, like Shia Sunni fault line. And so I think that well, I'm trying to look ahead a little bit and try and see where the next interesting things will be from my point of view as a journalist, so I'm not completely wrong-footed again. Um, I think that's one way of, of trying to interpret it and trying to look at it and try and see, you know, Bahrain, for example, has effectively now, I mean, the, to start with, the, the rebellion there was not something that was wholly sectarian, but it's become more sectarian. Sectarianism is a force that is looking as a, a negative force, I'd say quite a destructive force, is in the region, in the Middle East now, as, it, as, rather, as nationalism was in Europe in the last century. And I wouldn't say, I'm not saying, I'm not predicting some kind of cataclysm here. Uh, I'm not predicting you know, major wars in which millions die. Of course not, because the respective parties are not yet anyway armed to that degree to, to, to do something like that. But in terms of... Um, a force that can be used to manipulate people, to motivate people, to justify things. Sectarianism is a, is, a, is a powerful force in the way that nationalism was and to a degree still is in our continent here. 
So that's where I would look for the, the way that things are going to go in the future. I certainly think that um, it'll provide a lot of honest employment for the likes of me for some time to come, and the likes of you too, probably. And, uh, and I do think, though, just to conclude before we have a few questions, is that uh, some people have said, well, you know, these elections in which um, Islamist parties have won or done very well, it's, you know, one man, one vote, one time. That's the old cliche about that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm not so sure. I think that there's now an ingrained habit of protest. If people actually took to the streets to get rid of, or took to their weapons to get rid of leaders who they didn't like, are they going to fall for it a second time? Will they, if someone says, well, you know, it's a, it's a time of disruption, we've got to postpone the elections, or will they go out into the streets again? I think they'll go out into the streets again. Also, I think that the, a bit like the Lib Dems in this country, the experience of holding office will change the complexion of some of the, I think certainly the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is a good example, they may well be influenced by holding office. And I, I, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, I was in a Muslim Brotherhood uh, clinic in a poor part of Cairo, talking to uh, a young woman there, dentist, you know, pious, religious. And, and she said, yeah, I voted for the Muslim Brotherhood, but frankly, I'm not dedicated to doing that because what we need in this country, are decent schools, decent hospitals, healthcare, jobs, and I think that they're the best people to provide them. But if they don't, I'm not going to vote. See, she said, I've got Islam in my heart. We have a, you know, a very simple book, which it's all written down in. We don't need the Muslim Brotherhood to tell us how to pray. We don't need the Muslim Brotherhood to tell us even how to live. We know how to do it, to do it in a, in a, in a way that conforms to the tenets of our religion. What we need from the Muslim Brotherhood just now is an economy that works and sorting out our problems and living better than we did under Mubarak. And if we don't get that, well, I'm not going to vote for them again. And I've met other people as well who say similar things. So, you know, we'll see. Maybe I'm being a little over-optimistic there. But no, I think that they are in a new, they're, they're in a new place now. Uh, that the elections will be part of it. That doesn't make a democracy. Voting doesn't make a democracy. But it, makes, it does bring change. And I think the change will continue. And at that point, I'll stop. And I hope you can ask some questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Jeremy has given us uh, much food for thought. I, I want to start, it was supposed to be a conversation between myself and Jeremy, so we'll have a, a conversation between all of us. Yes. You uh, said that you think, based on your knowledge of Qaddafi, that he was delusional, he was not mad. Not mad, He was no. living in a bubble, yeah. divorced from reality. Uh, he thought of himself, you know, his image of himself, you know, larger than life image, yeah. the king of Africa, Abdel Nasser of Egypt yeah. and what have you. Based on your, your knowledge of Assad of Syria, do you think that Bashar al-Assad uh, is also living in, in bubble? Is he really as delusional as Qadhafi in this particular sense? And do you, based on what we know now in the last uh, uh, 20 months, do you think that Syria has already descended into all-out war and also you insinuated that what NATO did in uh, Libya did undermine the Security Council and the ability of the international community to act in Syria in the same yeah. way it did. How, how
how, how, do, how, do, how do you see Syria uh, yeah. uh, uh, mutating, evolving, uh, based on what you have seen in Libya and Syria so far? Yeah. Um, I think that um, Assad, I did think he's, he was in a different kind of bubble. You know, I, I've, I've interviewed Assad a couple of times and I've met him. Uh, and when you go and interview Assad, um, they do it in a in a in the, the there's this big presidential palace on on the, the hill overlooking Damascus, and when you go and interview him there, um, they hold it in a in, a, in a, a sort of guest house, which I think was built as a family house, as a matter of fact, paid for by Hariri, um, and but never occupied by the Assad family, like a sort of boutique hotel when you go in there, you know, fountains and marble and things like that, and. And so he takes you off for a, a little off-the-record chat on a, in, a, in an anteroom without any of his advisors and without the camera. And he's, you know, he gets a, a little bit frank. And when I was speaking, I, I, first time I interviewed him, it was during the 2009 Gaza War. We're talking about his relationships with Hamas. And he was kept saying, he, quite, he kept emphasizing his pragmatism. He says, I'm pragmatic, I'll do what is necessary for Syria. He said, you know, for example, he said... And he was talking about as if you were discussing a, uh, a dispute over um, a, 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 the, the trimming of a tree with a neighbor. He said, you know my family's relations with the Muslim Brotherhood. They haven't always been good. So I was thinking, are you thinking about the Hammer massacre there? What exactly are you... Um... And he was. He was referring to that. He said, you know, it hasn't always been smooth between my family and the Muslim Brotherhood. I thought, yes, yeah, the Muslim Brotherhood opposed your father from the very beginning and continues to do so, and, uh, and you killed an awful lot of them. Yeah, it certainly wasn't smooth. He said, but we have a relationship with Hamas. I'm, I'm their host here in Damascus. He said, why? Because it's good for Syria. It's good for Syria that uh, Hamas are with us. So I'm prepared to forget things. You know, so he felt, he feels, I think, that he, he, he certainly feels he knows a lot. He feels he knows what's going on better than anybody else. He's quite, for a guy who's got quite a geeky appearance, which is why I think a lot of people possibly underestimated his capacity for violence. Um, he, he quite, to put it crudely, he quite fancies himself. You know, he thinks he's, uh, he's got it. He's sorted out. He can see the big picture. So I think in a way that's a bit of a bubble because, you know, I think the thing about being perceptive about a place is to realize when maybe your arguments aren't right. And so his bubble is maybe one of his own making insofar as he is also, I think, of course, distanced from the, you know, the blood and the bone of, of running a dictatorship himself in terms of... I don't think he's the guy in the torture chamber. Um, I think his brother might be. Um, and, you know, his father came up from the bottom and he started as a poor man. And, and Bashar has grown up in palaces, literally quite modest palaces, but none, nonetheless he was a prince. So I think that he is... At that point, when I, and I certainly think at the beginning, he did believe a lot of his own, because it was true that uh, he, he had quite a bit of credibility. For an Arab leader, uh, until all of this started, he really had, not among, there are plenty of people in Syria you'd meet who say, he's, don't trust the Assads, they're always blood, going to be bloodthirsty. But there are still a fair number of people who'd give him a chance, and say, come on, give him a chance, he's trying, his father's people are still there, you know, he will bring change, he will bring reform, and he was still talking about that. Uh, so I think Assad is somebody who, I don't know if he fooled himself that he was going to do that. I don't know if it was originally always uh, 
uh, a ploy and a ruse, but now I think what they've, they've done is they've gone, they've gone to the playbook of, of, the, of the, you know, his, his father and his, and his uncle, and, uh, and they, they're using a great deal of violence. The way it's going to go, it is our all-out war, I'd say. Um, I had a, I can't get a visa at the moment for Damascus, but a colleague of mine from Beirut, Lebanese, so she doesn't need a visa, went up to try and look for visas last week. She said, you know, in, she was staying in the Four Seasons, which is right in the center of uh, Damascus. She said, you, you go to sleep listening to shelling and you wake up listening to shelling right now in Damascus. Uh, so Damascus appeared to be a bit of a bubble when I was there January, February. Though even then there was military activity in the, um, by rebels in the, in the suburbs, and now it's much more than that. So I think, it's been a long answer, I think Syria is going to go deeper into war. I think that he does have genuine support among his own community and among others as well, other minorities. Uh, that gives him a certain critical mass himself. And I think that Assad, they, they honestly believe if they don't fight, they'll die. And it's been a huge political failure by the opposition not to organize themselves, not to be able to reach out to Alawites and to say to them, you know, we may be Sunnis, but, you know, we're gonna, it's going to be okay. You have a future in this country. If they had managed to do that, I think that things may have been different. But they didn't. And so people there, for what, rightly or wrongly, uh, people on the, the minority side of things in Syria increasingly absolutely believe what the regime says, that they are facing men with beards who will come in and make their daughters veil themselves and deprive them of all their secular freedoms and life would be even worse than it was before. Not to mention that Syria has become a war by proxy. Yeah. Where a fierce regional struggle taking place between Iran yeah. on the one hand and Saudi yeah. Arabia and Qatar and Turkey. Yes, and in this particular sense, this gives Assad plenty of room to maneuver. It, it does. I think that the view from the presidential palace in Damascus is actually not as bleak as some people might, might, might think. I think in, in Assad's world, things aren't going too badly. He's still got Russia watching his back in the Security Council. The Chinese as well are helping out. He's getting weapons. Uh, he sees disunity in the, in the opposition. He sees a lack of political organization. And he realizes as well that there's this, there's this bigger struggle going on in the region, which Syria is part of, which does mean that the fighting gets ramped up, but it also means that it's, as you say, there's more, more maneuvering space for him. What do you see? How do you see what next for Syria? Do you see any kind of indirect Western intervention in the next few months after the U.S. elections? How do you, this is all out war. No one knows how long it will take and what will be the consequences on Syria and its neighbors. I think that um, after the U.S. election, you know, the Turks are pressing for a, um, a, a safe area, as they call it, in the north of the, you know, Idlib, somewhere like that. Um, and I, I interviewed uh, Davutoglu, the foreign minister, at the, uh, the UN General Assembly a month or two ago, and he said very strongly, very strongly, that that was necessary. Uh, you know, of course, the difficulty is when there's a paralysis in the in the Security Council to get the requisite international legitimacy and legality, it's going to be very, very hard. I do think that the thing that would perhaps get the West to try to do something and intervene is if they felt that the war was so leaking out to the neighbors that it was going to cause them more problems uh, to sit on their hands than to, to act. And I think that the Turks may eventually, they might eventually even try and do something themselves. I don't on their own. I don't know. Um, 
Dermatologists... No, actually, I probably don't. I've got ahead of myself there. Um, because most Turks, the majority of Turks, are against it. They think that, that uh, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister are pushing too hard and going too fast. But I think that, that you know, t- talking to the Foreign Minister, he, he said, I said, well, hang on, if you set up, go into Syria and set up a safe area, that's an act of war. It's an act of war. And you don't have UN backing for it. And he said, he said, yeah, I know that, and hopefully we'll get, get somewhere. But then he also said, sometimes you have to take risks now because otherwise there will be many more risks further down the road and things will get worse. And the Turks, you know, they're very conscious that 800-kilometer frontier, already well over 100,000 refugees from Syria in their country, Uh, you know, a certain amount of military contagion going on. And, of course, the Turks are intimately involved in it as a party to the war because they let the, the armed rebels train, regroup, arm themselves and cross over the border. Jeremy, you have... Thank you so much. You, you talked first, you started, you talked about Tunisia and Egypt yeah. as one particular model in the Arab uprisings. Then yeah. you talked about Libya in terms of NATO intervention. Yeah. And of course, Yemen, which was basically the Yemeni model, whereby, I mean, the political power was, uh, I mean, the vice president took over from Ali Abdullah Saleh. Yeah. Yeah. And now we have the Syrian model, which is all out wars. So we have different, different models. Different models. There isn't really one model, is there? I do mean, you buy. Do you buy the premise that the republics are different from the monarchies, that somehow the winds of change have not really reached the Arab monarchies? And, and how deeply entrenched are the grievances in the Gulf? Does it really the Gulf? Do the monarchies differ dramatically from the Arab republics? I think that every part of the region is susceptible to pressures for change. I think the difference is the way that the regimes handle it. Uh, you know, monarchies have some advantages over a republic. Even republics that have become quite monarchical, trying to pass on the throne to sons. There's a prime minister to sack. There's a government to blame. There's more legitimacy among the, the rulers, among the kings. Their fathers, their grandfathers have been there. There are tribal connections there. Um, but the question is how you respond to the pressures for change. And in the Gulf, they have one great thing on their side, which is money. Uh, and that has been pretty much what they've been doing in Saudi Arabia, is essentially to pump a lot of money into it. $140 billion yes. they have spent on um, the welfare. Massive it's amount of money. In the last... Yeah. Because Saudi Arabia has many of the same problems. You know, there's a really high rate of unemployment among young people. And poverty. In, in poverty, too, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, huge inequalities in a country which is stupendously wealthy. So, I, you know, I think that my view is, and I'm hoping to go to Saudi Arabia fairly soon and then take a look for myself. I haven't been able to get a visa until recently, but they seem to be opening up a bit. Um, I think that the, the Saudis are just looking at the behavior of King Abdullah in pumping all that money into the system. You, you talk to Saudi officials, they say, well, you know, we were always planning to do that. I said, we didn't quite get around to it, did you? Hmm until uh, the whole place seemed to be about to fall apart. So I think that, that they are um, just that very, that action of pumping that much money into the system shows how concerned that they are. And there's something else, of course, which is the increasing amount of unrest in Katif and in the eastern part of the, the country, uh, which is it's quite hard to assess through not, not being there the degree to which, yes. how serious it is. But it seems to be getting more serious, bigger demonstrations, people being killed. Not a mass thing at all, but 
but a lot of rumblings. And then, of course, that's intimately linked with, yes. that, with the wider fact that the, the, the Saudi-Iran competition, you know, you go to Saudi Arabia, you sit and talk to princes, they're obsessed with Iran. And that frames a lot of their, their <coughs> behavior. You talked about, also, uh, we'll come back to you in a minute, I promise. You talked about a counter-revolution. Yes. I mean, obviously, Saudi Arabia has emerged as a spearhead in the counter-revolutionary uh, uh, effort in the region, in Tunisia, even in Egypt, and uh, what have you. Do you think the Iranian-Saudi relationship, what really Saudi Arabia is more is to divert attention, focus on sectarianism, the focus on the Iranian threat, what have you, do you think this is an, a real geostrategic really concern on the part of the monarchy, or is it part of an effort on the part of the monarchy to divert attention from internal concerns? The reason why I say so is I think one of the lessons we have learned in the last two years is not just about economic vulnerabilities, the grievances in Tunisia, in Yemen, in Libya, in Egypt. They're about al-Karam, about dignity, about effective political citizenship. It's about, as you said, reclaiming the state, the state that was really turned into a family-based state, that is basically the, the, uh, about the fact that many people felt that the state itself uh, became in Arabic a rizba, that is a fiefdom, uh, where chronic uh, systematic corruption was the, I mean, the, the, the rule of the game. Uh, in this particular sense, do you think the money that's being spent in the Gulf really is enough to basically deal with the grievances and the aspirations of people? And how do you see the Iranian-Saudi uh, 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 rivalry uh, in that part of the world? Well, the answer to that question is I don't really know, and I don't think anyone particularly knows, because I think that, as I say, um, sectarianism and emphasizing identity like that is a, it's, a, it's a useful tool for, for rulers. Of course it is. But for it to be a useful tool, it has to have a, a germ of reality about it as well. Uh, you know, it, to, for, for it to be convincing and for them to use it, uh, I think that those feelings have to be reflected uh, as a reality. I think that as for the relationship across the Gulf, you know, one thing which we haven't talked about is, is the growing crisis, very slow burning, of, about Iran's nuclear intentions and their nuclear plans. Um, that's something which is it's in no sense a closed book at this point, whether or not... I, I mean, Netanyahu has, has put back Israel's date of decision. Um, but I, I think my, my instinct is that there, there won't be an attack on Iran. But... You know, it's not impossible that such a thing could happen. And the Saudis, of course, have been cheerleaders for that. For quite, you know, there was that WikiLeaks paper about cutting off the head of the snake, quoting the king, meaning Iran. Uh, I think that that's one of the conflicts that will define the way that the, the region goes. And I think that there are potential for the Saudis, there are you know, potential moments of definite vulnerability ahead. But the king is old. Yes. He's not well. <clears throat> they have a procedure for... Uh, for, for coming to us, getting for the, managing the succession. But moments like that are sometimes moments when, when events happen and people get into the streets and people take advantage of them. And, and this brings me to the question you said you were in Iran in 2009. Yes. It really all started, we, we say, you know, what will be the effect of the Arab uprisings on Iran? People forget that 
in 2009, yeah. hundreds of thousands of Iranians yeah. went on the streets and defied. I mean, the, how do you see in real, what why the Arab masses stood up and challenged the oppressive apparatus in their countries? Why Iran did not go the way the, and the Arab states uh, have? And do you see any, uh, I mean, in terms of really political tensions below the surface, bursting uh, in, in, in Iran, Iran, in, Iran. In, in, based on what you know? I think those political tensions, I mean, there's clearly a, a fight for power in the, you know, in, in, in the elite between the, the president, the supreme ruler, and the people, supreme leader, and the people around them. Um, you know, one of the determinants of, determinants of that is going to be the, uh, the, the economy, the economic situation. You know, we saw demonstrations once again in the streets of Tehran a week or two ago because the currency was collapsing. You hit people in their pocketbooks. That's something which they really care about. I think that one of the reasons why the, uh, the uh, rebellion, attempted rebellion in 2009 didn't work in Iran was, as I said, I don't think they had enough people behind them because I don't think enough people cared enough about the results of the elections. Some did, and for a while there were hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets, but it wasn't that long afterwards that the demonstrations were 2,000 and that there were, I mean, I walked the streets of, uh, of Tehran with uh, a, an Iranian colleague, female colleague of mine, and, uh, you know, it also there was this um, priceless moment before we went out the first time, and she said, she was, you know, in the office, she dressed in a Western style, and then she put some, covered herself up a bit as we were going out. She had a very nice pair of, rather an elegant lady, a very nice pair of strappy sandals and rather good manicure on her toes, and we, before we were going out, she said, I've just got to change my shoes and put on some trainers. I said, why? Is that in case we have to run? She said, no, no. If we're arrested and they see my nails, we're really in trouble. No, I think the thing was then, we walked down the streets, saw these thugs with clubs and guys with guns behind them and, and gangs of motorcycle riders going around, picking people up. Uh, they, and, you know, the repressive, the, the, the apparatus of repression and coercion there really worked because there weren't enough people to overwhelm it because people didn't care enough about the issue. I think if the economy goes south, then there will be more people caring about it. It's amazing, Jeremy, but the whole logic behind the Western, as you know, uh, the United States and the Western powers are really waging one of the, I mean, a war by other means against uh, Iran, one of the most pressing sanctions regimes in history. And the whole idea is that we will starve the Iranian regime. Uh, the Iranian real has lost almost 50% of its value in the last year. Uh, unemployment among the youth is almost 45%. The middle class has been decimated. And the question is, as you say, to what extent will the sanctions basically exacerbate the crisis of authority in Iran and bring about uh, a change? I mean, it's a big question. It's a big if. It's a big if, and, you know, we don't know. And there's an election coming up. That could be another focus. Final question before we... Uh, you, you, you said that you're not just... I mean, not just correspondents didn't really did not predict... I mean, it, predictions is a very, very risky business. Yes. It's almost impossible in social sciences. But do you think, and really this is a, 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 I know it's a blunt question, do you think one of the reasons that reporters, and in particular Western reporters, is because we, most of us focus on elite politics, politics from the top down as opposed to the bottom up. We really, if you, if you, if you turn the television on, all the stories about what? 
the kings and the presidents about. I mean, we yeah, hardly really. We, we did things about, uh, say, uh, Gamal's succession to Mubarak, yeah. things like that. So you think one of the lessons, I mean, and I know this is a, it's, it's a very huge question, one of the lessons that probably the media in the UK in particular would take mm. out of what has happened is that there are societies, <laughs> there is public opinion. There are different segments. There is politics and different kinds. It's not just street, the Arab streets. That was uh, always a phrase I hated, the Arab street. You know, I had visions of this great long street full of people without names, yes, you know, who all acted in the same way and punched the air quite a bit. You know, it's, it's, you know clearly it was just a, it's a gross oversimplification. No, I think it's a very good point. I think that actually in terms of the reporting that we do of politics in the United States or in Westminster, you know, we do, we, we cover Westminster, and in the States, we cover, I'm not talking just about the BBC, I'm talking about Western media organizations. You know, we, we're inside the Beltway. In the States, people always say, well, we've got to get out. New correspondents in Washington always say, we've got to get outside the Beltway, and they never do. They get sucked into the White House because it's power and things seem to happen there. And, and it's also, it's, as a journalist, it's more difficult to get a handle on what's coming up on the, you know, from, from the grassroots identifying the trend rather than just talking to a random lot of people in a, in a, in a cafe or something. It's, it's harder, but I think that now as societies have opened up, I think we are more aware as foreigners uh, and also, you know, work with a lot of people who aren't foreigners as well um, of the different forces and the different segments and are hopefully able to identify them, maybe do a little bit better next time. That's great. So we'll start. We'll take four questions uh, at a time. And uh, and All right. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Uh, Hisham Helia from the Brookings Institution, resident in Cairo. Um, I'm curious, Jeremy, about one particular point that you raised uh, with regards to Egypt, you know, the new Muslim Brotherhood government. Um, the impressions that myself and a lot of my colleagues and other commentators within Egypt um, have developed about the Muslim Brotherhood after President Morsi took office uh, and the success of the Muslim Brotherhood in gaining a plurality of seats at the elections is that they still seem to be in this opposition mode, even though they're actually in power. Um, a couple of weeks ago, as you probably know, there was a protest in Tahrir, and the Brotherhood uh, was, was in Tahrir fighting against you know, opposition activists, but still acting as though they were still in the opposition, not as though they were still in power. And I'm wondering, from your vantage point within the media, interviewing different members of different parts of the Brotherhood, including the Freedom and Justice Party, the presidency, and so on, if that sort of impression has also come across to you, that this is still uh, a group that's very much in the opposition mode. Please okay. be specific, and our time is very precious. Please. Questions, yes. Go ahead. Um, apologies for the personal question. Do you ever find it difficult in your role to remain dispassionate when you're seeing colleagues being killed, when you're seeing maybe someone you just interviewed being killed, or even people like Gaddafi you interview and a few weeks later you see a video of him being dragged through the streets? I mean, do you find it difficult to remain dispassionate? Okay. Um, Alison Coburn, I work for an international NGO and I spent much of the last year in Libya. Uh, working with young Libyans running leadership programs. And I was interested in the point you made about what started the revolution. My impression, working with young people in Libya, is that it's not over yet uh, by any means. And I'd be interested in your view on that generational dynamic in the future, and particularly young women. Please, the gentleman. Um, 
My, my question is this. In, in the good old days, we had America versus Russia, you know, in the 70s and, and before that. Nowadays, we've got, it seems to me, we've got Iran and its allies versus Saudi, perhaps Turkey, and other states in the region, never mind outside the region. You, know, you talked earlier about how you were perhaps unable to predict the, the, the uprisings, but surely there's got to be some fallout of those sides, if that's the right word, and, and how, do you, how do you see that coming to a head? Okay, that's four questions. Shall we? Shall we go? Yeah, I'll stand up for this. So you see me. First one, Muslim Brotherhood um, still in opposition mode. Um, I think some of them certainly are because, you know, years and years of ingrained opposition, uh, of opposition ingrained habits in the way that you... Um, I, I think in the... Um, around the president, I haven't interviewed the president yet, but I do have spoken to people around him. Um, I think that he's trying to seize the levers of power. You know, the way that he carried out that um, maneuver against the top of the military and did his own deals with people further down there. Um, but I think it's, you know, for, for them, it's, a, it's, a, it's clearly it's going to be a very difficult transition. And, of course, one of the things about power is that it helps if you have some things to give away and flexibility. And, um, and with Egypt, I keep going back to the economy because when there's such a pressure of population, where the economy is in such a bad state, then that means that, that I mean, you can see it in other parts of the world. You can see it in Europe. You see it in this country. If the economy isn't going right, politicians have very little room for manoeuvre. And sometimes it, it's almost easier to be a, a cheerleader from the opposition and try and get with the streets, uh, even if you're in power. Uh, but I think people will see through that ultimately. Difficulty about remaining dispassionate. Um, yeah, I think uh, sometimes yes, of course, yeah. Yes. Uh, it's not as hard as you think, though. I'm quite used to it. And... Um, and, you know, with the BBC, always, the issue is whether you remain impartial. That's what my bosses really care about, whether you remain impartial in your reporting. And I think it is possible to be aware of your... I don't think anybody can be objective because, you know, we're all a product of where we grew up and what our parents said to us and our educations, what the professors said and, and our experiences. And as a journalist, when you're covering a story, you have to decide first thing in the morning, what are you going to do? Should we go to that place or that place today? And, that, and you base those decisions on, on your own thoughts. And, and so, therefore, you can't be objective in a literal sense. But I think you can try and be impartial. Impartial doesn't necessarily mean dispassionate. I think that impartiality, as a journalist, it doesn't mean... One of my colleagues told, gave a good example. He said he did this in a training video. They were in a bar in Sarajevo, and two guys were having a fight. And he said to the barman, so... Um, why are they having a fight? And he said, well, that one says that two and two equals four, and the other one says two and two equals five. So, you know, you can't say the truth lies somewhere in between. Actually, it doesn't. Two and two equal four. Uh, you know, politics is a bit more complicated than that, but the fact is, you know, part of my job as Middle East editor at the BBC is not just to say, well, that's happening, and that's happening, and that's happening, and the truth lies somewhere in between. My job is to say, this is probably the way it's going. Uh, is that dispassionate? But if you mean in, the, in an emotional sense as well, the thing about being a foreign correspondent is that you do know people. A lot of my friends have been killed. And I was asked today by this, yesterday by this Israeli journalist that he said, are you so anti-Israeli 
because your, colleague, your Lebanese colleague was killed in front of your eyes by the IDF in, in uh, Lebanon in 2000. I said, well, I'm not anti-Israeli, actually. I'm a journalist, and I cover the area, and I try and tell the truth about it. He said, yeah, I know you're not anti-Israeli, but the, that's the argument that people make, that your mind has been turned against Israelis by the fact you saw them killing one of your friends. And uh, I say it's not. I think that as a, as a reporter, you can switch those things off. And plus, these days at the BBC, we have so many deadlines, you just have to hit them, and you don't have too much time to think sometimes. Um, the Libyan revolution not over yet. Well, I think that it's clear that, that whole, they have a long way to go in terms of, of change because, you know, the thing about Libya was because, the state, because, you know, Gaddafi had his own quixotic system of government and that he had, he had created and sustained with a security state. The fact is, is that when it was the most complete revolution because once the family went and once Gaddafi went, the system went with him. So they're having to rebuild from the bottom up. There are no institutions that were left behind. There's no legacy, no good legacy. Uh, so as a result of that, there's a lot to build. There's a lot to do. You asked about women. It was interesting, you know, you, you, I've spoken to more educated women in Tripoli who are very aware of the, the politics of all of it and want to take a public role. But, you know, of course, in quite large parts of, of Libya, you don't see women outside the house. I mean, I was in Misrata last week. Apart from my female producer uh, and the uh, one woman who came out from the woman's side of the house to talk to us, uh, it, this was the, someone just outside the city, I didn't see a female. I didn't see them in the shops. I didn't see them on the streets. There, was no, there were no females working in the hotel. Clearly, there were a lot of females in Misrata. I was on the streets for, there for, for three days. I didn't see them, didn't see anyone. So the, the role at the moment is not a public one. Um, talking about the superpower conflict of the... Uh, yeah, I mean, there is this, um, you know, this regional conflict, as we were talking about, between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And, and in a sense, it's one side, it's friends of Iran, and the other side, it's friends of Saudi Arabia... United States, uh, you know, it's, it's got a bit more complicated because of the, you know, the changes about, you know, where, where will Egypt stand in all of this? When Mubarak was around, everybody knew where they would be and that kind of argument they'd be with the Americans. Not so clear, not so clear now. So, yes, of course, there will be fallout from, from all, of, all of that. And I think it's going to be one of the determining factors about the way the region is going to go. Can we make a second another, round? Yeah, yeah, sure. Please. Please, let's be quick. Yeah. Um, coming back to the question of top-down media coverage, yes. um, can I ask you, uh, why is there so little news about the conditions of the uh, huge number of indentured labor, uh, laborers in the Gulf and their, their conditions? They are the unspoken majority. Please. Uh, Misha Klamesh, Digi Press. Um, thank you very much, Mr. Bone. Uh, huge fan. Um, just a question about sort of narratives and sort of generalities. Um, you mentioned the fact that you know that a lot of commentators maybe made the comparison with 1989, but it's not like that. It's actually um, different. And I remember when I studied history, you now I, I always would get marked down saying, you know, it's um, you know uh, not every every revolution is like the other one. So um, uh, maybe not all revolutions are oranges. You have apples as well. 
Um, so are there any type of generalities that you feel that you can make about the so-called Arab Spring or Springs, or, or should it all be on a, like, just a case-by-case, -case, very um, distinct, separated basis in your analyses? Okay, please. Hi, I just wanted to ask you um, what or who you think was responsible for the bombing in Ashrafia last Friday, and also we're using your powers of prediction, what you think is next um, for Lebanon in the upcoming years. He said she can't. Can I asked. Uh, all right, so we'll send somebody. I, I already asked. Please. Um, hi, Jeremy. Um, you talked about how the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict took up quite a lot of the coverage beforehand and almost forgot about everybody else, but <laughs> the Arab states have been pretty much watchers on to what's been happening in Palestine and Israel. They haven't been doing anything to help the Palestinian cause. Will the Arab uprisings or any change that happens, will that change the dynamic in what happens to the Palestinians? Will, they, will there be any justice for them? Change the dynamic for the Israelis and Palestinians, do you say? Okay. That's a good question. Um, you've mentioned that the uh, schism between Shia and Sunni Islam is part of the, the problem for the future of the region, but do you think that that could prove to be reconcilable in the same way that it was clearly not in other sectarian conflicts like in the Balkans uh, in the past? So why not let's answer the, and then we'll take one final round. To, to answer okay, I'll try and go through these quickly then. Um, so little news about indentured laborers in the Gulf. I agree. It's, you know, I've read human rights reports about the, what happens to them, and it's a story that, you know, one of the frustrations about my job is there are so many stories we just don't get onto. Because often there's something. It, the thing about news is that it's, news tends to be things which are, you know, there's a landscape, and then the landscape changes, and the change is the news. But I suppose things like the problems of indentured laborers in the Gulf, they're, they're part of the landscape. And so while it's a very, it's a very good subject for, for, for no, it's a very good subject for a documentary. They should. Um, I mean, I remember uh, a British diplomat in Abu Dhabi, I think, telling me about his particular, this is 20 years ago, telling me about his particular horror that uh, I think the, I think maybe the Sri Lankans on an oil rig had been replaced by Nepalese because the Nepalese didn't need any, any, any shore leave. They'd go with the whole contract, they'd be on the rig. Yeah, quite extraordinary lives. Um, <coughs> Uh, what was the next thing? I can't understand my writing. Um, uh, God, my writing is so bad. What was this, the next question after Labour's about revolutions? Um, oh, generalities about the revolutions, yes. Um, <clears throat> I think what, what is common are the pressures for change. I think what is different are the way that that shows in different places. I think that... Um, Arab countries have, you know, there are some, there are a lot of connections, yet it helps having the same language. But in a sense, they're really much more diverse than we are in Europe. We're much, much more similar in Europe, but it sometimes doesn't seem the same, seem like that way because of the, um, you know, I think because of the, the fact we, we don't share a common language. But I think that... Um, Generality is always a little bit dangerous, but certain, I certainly think, I agree with your point that, you know, one revolution is never quite like another. Uh, you know, generals always fight the last war, uh, not the one that's going to come. Uh, Ashrafia, the bomb there, that's in, in Beirut, that large assassination. 
Well, I think all the circumstantial evidence points to the Syrians. Um, this was a man uh, who was uh, leading the investigations against uh, Syrian activities in the, in the country. He was the guy who was behind the, the operation that got Michel Smaha, the uh, basically you know, Assad's man in, uh, in Beirut with explosives in his car, for goodness sake. Um, so, yeah, he was a man who uh, was clearly a target for the Syrians, and so I can't say definitely, and, but I think it was very much seen by people when I was in Beirut at the weekend as a continuation of that period of assassinations that followed the assassination of Hariri, the same kind of, of, of operation by the Syrians uh, and with the same intention, to show who's boss. Um, the Israel-Palestinian conflict, will, it change, will the dynamics change? I think ultimately they probably will. I think that the Israelis feel that the whole earth is moving underneath them at the moment. Um, and the way that, uh, under Netanyahu, that that has shown itself is essentially, I think, in a desire to build the walls a bit higher. Uh, not to try and reach out and try and take advantage of, of... There were plenty of commentators a year or so, 18 months ago in Israel, arguing that because of the changes in the region, Netanyahu should pretty get on with trying to do a deal. I think the reality probably is, is that the two-state solution is part of history now. It's something that never happened. It's never going to happen. I think things have gone too far, probably, in terms of development for settlers on, in the occupied territories. Um, I think that the way that the Palestinians behave, they will perhaps have their own uh, Arab Spring, if you like, against their own leadership. You know, you think that it's... Uh, you certainly look at the, um, the, the leadership of uh, Fatah. You know, they have signally failed to achieve their objectives over 50 years. Uh, the, the, you wouldn't be surprised if there was pressure for a change. And on the, um, the schism, will things get better? I think if a sectarian civil war is taking root in Syria, which it is, uh, with other players in the region involved in it, the schism will get sharper. Thanks very much. Um, isn't, isn't it fair to say that the West's, the West's response to all this has been very ambivalent, that despite the rhetoric of support for democracy and change, their Western governments actually feel deep anxieties that um, at best all this is going to complicate their lives and at worst it's going to threaten their interests? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the... Oh, we're doing, we're doing one by one. Aren't we? Sorry. Any questions from... I'll do There's another no one. No questions. All right. We have a question, two questions here. We'll take four questions as well, so... Come. All right. Okay. Yeah, two questions, yes. Uh, two very short ones. First one, you mentioned Russia feeling somewhat done by the, the original Libya deal with the sort of the, the phrase inserted in the, uh, the resolution at the time and that that had, might have some bearing on the position in Syria today and you indicated that you might want to elaborate on that. It would be okay. interesting to hear your opinion. Secondly, there seems to be this tipping point idea in the international community that if only the rebels in Syria were to kind of get strong enough, they could push the regime into you know, giving in and then there would be kind of prosperous democracy ever after. 
Um, how do you place the, like Assad's arsenal of weapons of uh, mass destruction within this context? For how real do you see the possibility of him actually, you know, pulling a trigger on these? Uh, hi. Uh, just from sort of a journalistic viewpoint, an early point you made with regards to the uh, Libyan regime only letting you in when they felt they had something to gain, but pretty much every BBC and any Western report wasn't really portraying the view that the regime was trying to portray. And I'm just wondering how that sort of, how it sort of worked when you're saying they were trying to get something out of it, but clearly uh, Western media wasn't um, towing the line. There's a question Um, thank you very much. A um, couple of questions, if I may. Firstly, if, could you um, develop a bit on, on Lebanon and the prospects you think of Lebanon being drawn into the, the conflict or whether the memories of the civil war are strong enough to prevent that? And secondly, just very quickly, could you just think about uh, or tell us about your views on uh, the prospects for Jordan? Thank you. Final question. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Um, it, my question's a bit of a counterpoint to the question from upstairs. So if the international community did really want to support lasting democracy and prosperity in the region, what would it need to do and what would it not need to do? Okay, right. Do this quickly. Um, Western concern about, yeah, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the, the, the reason why, you know, the West talks about human rights, justice, democracy, and so on, and, and yet we helped sustain people in power for many years who didn't support all of that. Why? Because it, they were useful to us. Uh, they were reliable allies, quote-unquote, allies in the war on terror, people for whom after 9-11 it was possible to render suspects to those places to get them interrogated. And I think that the Western countries have been struggling to keep up with events. I think they've been confused about who to ring now that they don't have these familiar old faces in the presidential palaces. Uh, and I think that they've also been forced to realize that they have probably even less influence than they actually believe that they had. And I think it's interesting as well that the Americans have taken consciously, and Obama's a back seat, don't think they have a choice uh, it is interesting the way that the hubris of 2003 that led to the invasion which, of Iraq, which I think was catastrophic uh, in its consequences, um, has been replaced by this much more cautious attitude. I think the Americans are aware of the limits of their power uh, through hard experience. So, yeah, uh, the West is struggling to know how to, quite how to respond to all of this. And I think you can see certainly in the way that it's responded to what's happening in Bahrain that... Uh, they, you know, it's easier to push for democracy in some countries than in others, from their point of view. Uh, Russia and, its, and the Security Council, yeah, they did, they did feel, I think, that they were somewhat blindsided by the West. It was a mistake on their part. You know, they abstained in that vote on all necessary measures. Um, and they believe, their argument is, is that the West then over-interpreted um, it, as NATO did, as a charter for regime change, which was never intended to be. Now, as far as Syria is concerned, um, I don't think Western countries who are press pressing in the Security Council, the British, the French, the Americans, for the Russians to, uh, to 
be involved in a joint policy with them and do some hard measures against sanctions or whatever against the Assad regime. They have not, the Western countries have not adequately answered the question that Russia poses, which is, so what happens when Assad does go? In what sense is the country going to be better off? Uh, how will that stop the war, which now appears to have a momentum of its own? Would there not be another figure from the Alawi community who might take over, or even from his own family? Uh, and, and the West, those questions have not been adequately answered by Western countries. And equally, the Russians have not answered the question, so why exactly are you arming someone who kills a lot of his people with your weapons? They haven't answered that question either. How, if you say you want to have stability in the region, is that actually helping? Um, and you also asked about weapons of mass destruction. I think the Americans have said that if, uh, if the Assad regime did use weapons of mass destruction, then it really would take the gloves off and do something angry and harsh. I think they probably would, actually. Um, getting something out of the Western media, yes. Uh, I think the reason why countries where they don't allow press freedom to their own uh, media allow in people like myself on occasion, and I spent quite a lot of time in Saddam Hussein's Iraq in the 90s, is because they feel that they can get their message out. And our job is to try and confuse that message and try to get to the truth of what's going on. And, you know, it's quite difficult. There was always in Baghdad in Saddam's day, you, there was a program. You asked for, a, there'd be a program of visits. You'd say, well, I'd like to do this, this, and this. And some things you, know, you knew you'd always get. Saddam Children's Hospital in Baghdad, they'd always let you go there because sanctions were harming children. But if you wanted to go and talk to people about their views about the future, no chance. Um, so what we get out of those situations is a very often an imperfect picture, but it's better than no picture at all. I'd say so it is worth taking those, those visas even to the countries which are quite difficult. Lebanon, it's already drawn in. There's so many links between, uh, there's so many links between Lebanon and Syria that it's, <laughs> the place is, is very connected on very many levels. So inevitably they have this, you know, the, the Prime Minister has a policy of trying to remain aloof, dissociate themselves from the conflict. I mean, I think that's just an aspiration. I don't think it's any kind of a strategy at all. Uh, I think that it's inevitable that Lebanon will be increasingly drawn into the whole thing, and they are already, uh, as the neighbors, other neighbors are too. And the question you asked about civil war, memories of civil war are strong, and it's a deterrent against pushing things too far, and there are efforts by community leaders to calm things down. But equally, there are people who are also playing a, their own game, which is dangerous and, and takes things to the brink, and I think every time there's an incident like that, um, assassination, even though things calm down in Beirut, the traffic starts moving again, things, people feel that they've just moved one step towards something very bad, closer to going back to some bad place. Um, Jordan. Uh, I think King Abdullah is quite a worried man at the moment. Say again, the same kinds of pressures for change. Uh, same allegations, not allegations, realities of corruption around the ruling elite, which are, you know, people, which are absolutely apparent that it's there, and that causes resentment. And the king is not, I think, as adept at uh, keeping the backing of important groups in Jordan as his father was. Maybe he'll learn how to do that, but I think that they have to move much faster than they are on giving the population what they need, more reform. 
And the last thing was on, it was... The West. Uh, the West. Uh, extension. It was the... The last... The, yes. It was, remind me what the last question was. The Western, about the West. Oh, yeah, what they should they do? Well, I think, first of all, not tell them, you know, be like us. Realize that the new societies that, will, that are evolving, or may evolve in some places, will evolve, I think, ultimately, um, are not going to be, you know, this is not going to turn Egypt, Tunisia, Algeria, other countries, they're not going to turn into the EU. Uh, you know, Egypt is not going to become Germany or the Netherlands. Uh, there's going to be a quite distinct flavor to it, and we shouldn't be alarmed by that. I think that what in the West we need to want to do, if we want to uh, try and get fairer societies there, which I think ultimately will benefit us, is to make sure that we single out the people who need help and use our aid budgets in a smart way and maybe don't spend quite so much on military aid as well. You know, the Americans give a colossal amount of military aid to the Egyptians, who of course love it and want it. Uh, but there are other ways of spending money to make things better. And also expertise and technical help. Perfect timing, Jeremy. Jeremy has given us only a taste of the rich menu in the book. And there are books outside, and he has kindly agreed to sign the books that I hope you will purchase, because really, um, as you have heard, he has given us a very, very enlightening and fascinating presentation. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for it.